0: I thought it would be good for us to look at Psalm 2, the second psalm, both of these psalms, are really very foundational, uh, not only to the whole book of Psalms, but to the whole whole purpose of God as it unfolds. So let's read Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? and the people plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. And now the speaker has changed here. This is Christ speaking. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, Be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now welcome immediately to our exposition of this psalm, and I'm going to do it under three headings. First of all, the rage of man, that's verses one to three. Uh, Secondly, the response of God, verses four to six, and thirdly the rain of of Christ. Verse 7 to the end of the psalm. And I think we need to understand right out at the beginning uh, who is being spoken of in the opening verse. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Who are these people who Rage and plot. Well, to the psalmist, the nations would be the Gentile nations uh, who surrounded Israel and uh, um, were usually, uh, inevitably, enemies of Israel. And just as the situation is today where Israel is surrounded by nations which are uh, at enmity and want to make an end of their existence, so it was then. And so they were very conscious of the rage, of the enmity of these surrounding nations, of the fact that those nations wanted them destroyed as a nation. But we must recognize when we move into verse two, that although he is talking about the kings of the earth and the rulers, nevertheless, he is talking about the people, not just the leaders of nations, not just the governments of nations, not just the warlords of the nations, but the, the people, and it's in the plural here, the peoples, they are raging against the people of God. Now, this is something that is is intrinsic to the a gentile condition, that is the condition of those who do not know God, uh, who do not seek God. They're very religious, of course. They have any number of gods, any number of idols that they worship, but but they have this enmity, uh, not just toward the nation of Israel in the context of the psalm, but they have an enmity toward the God, Of Israel. Now, this is not a political rage, it's not a political uh, uh, enmity towards the nation of Israel, it's a spiritual rage, a spiritual rage against God. When you see the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Israel, no, not at all. They take counsel together against Yahweh, the Lord, the personal name of the God of Israel. They take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, the word anointed there, or the person named as the anointed one, is the Messiah or the Christ. The three words are equivalent. The Messiah of the Old Testament, Christ of the New Testament, and the Anointed of God are are the same person. Many many different people were anointed in Old Testament times, (coughs) but uh, the words Messiah and Christ mean the Anointed One. Now, it is true, of course, that David as king and who probably wrote the psalm uh, was an anointed person. And we might say that in the context of the psalm, uh, David is talking about himself, that the nations, the unbelieving nations, the Gentile nations around were ranging against uh, God and King David as the leader of the nation of Israel. But I think that is highly unlikely uh, to be David's meaning in the psalm, uh, because uh, as we see later on, there is so much more to the kingdom of this anointed person than there ever was or ever could have been to the kingdom over which David himself ruled. So we're talking about the Christ, we're talking about the Messiah, is it, against, is it against the Lord, Yahweh, and against his Messiah, say? And then we can ask the question, what exactly is making them furious? What are they raging about? What, 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 what is their problem <clears throat> with the Lord and his Anointed? Well, we see that at the end of verse 2. They take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, they saw themselves as in bondage to the God of heaven no they weren't in bondage to Israel far from it <clears throat> Israel was threatened by their presence and thereby their warlike behavior uh, no they were conscious that there was a god that there is a god they were conscious that that God imposed certain restrictions upon them <clears throat> that they considered to be bondage, they were in shackles, they were in chains, they were tied up with cords, and they wanted to get rid of those restraints or constraints that the God of heaven imposed upon them. Well, you might say, what and how did God impose those restraints and constraints? upon the nations, upon the unbelieving world. Now in what sense, in what sense would these unbelieving people have felt they were in bondage to the God of heaven? That's a very interesting question, isn't it? Why did they feel that way? Why did it make them rage against God? Well, I suggest that they recognize their bondage in two ways. Um, First of all, they knew that such a God exists. And if we turn back to Romans chapter 1, we get this clearly stated by the Apostle Paul. Let's just read a few verses from Romans chapter 1. And we'll start with uh, uh, verse 18. Paul is talking about the Gentile world. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they knew God through this revelation in nature, they recognized his power and his Godhead in the creation around them. Uh, So although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking. and their foolish heart was darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged, I think the word replaced would be better there, and replaced the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Uh, You see, the Gentiles around the nation of Israel in the time that the Psalms written, they knew God. They knew about God, at least. And that is true of unbelieving people today, even of atheists. In the creation, its beauty, its order, and as science has unlocked many secrets of nature over the decades and and centuries, we have found uh, such a a perfection in nature, such an amazing detail, uh, such wonder in the things that are made, expressed in the Bible 3,000 years ago, but perhaps only recognized in recent times. They know that. They are without excuse, says the Apostle Paul, for their unbelief, because their staring them in the face is the reality of a creator God expressed in the nature around them. But they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, he says later on in that passage. They turned away from the revelation that God gave them. And they said, no, we don't like this. Because, you see, the, the implication is clear, isn't it? If there is a God who created all things, who sustains all things, in whom, as Paul tells the, um, the philosophers in Athens, uh, in whom we live and move and have our being, if there is such a God, then, oh my, are we not? responsible to him. And that was just the kind of bondage they feared or they thought they were under. They were responsible to God for the way they lived, for the things they did. They were responsible to God for their sins and iniquities. They didn't like that, and so they wanted to break the bonds and cast away the shackles. But there is another way in which they felt, and and of course this applies to unbelievers today, so it's very up to date. There's a second way in which they felt they were in bondage to this God, this God of heaven, this creator God. And and that uh, we read about in Romans chapter two. We've just been looking at Romans chapter one, uh, but now in Romans chapter two, and verse 14, we read this. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, now, the law here is a reference to the law of Moses, <coughs> and the Jews had that law, so they have been told what to do and what not to do, uh, and what they had to do to please God, and what was offensive to God. Um, but the Gentiles didn't have that law. They were totally ignorant of it. That, says Paul, that doesn't give them an excuse. The Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature what the law requires. When that happens, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law of Moses. They show the the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Not only do the unbelieving peoples of the world have the testimony of God in natural revelation creation, it's glory, it's wonder, it's obvious design and they don't like the implications of that but they also have within them something we call conscience and they have that conscience within them because all human beings are made in the image of God. That conscience knows instinctively that some things are right and other things are wrong, that conscience accuses them or excuses them as they go about their their lives, as they perform certain actions, as they have certain thoughts. And so they have not only the outward testimony of nature, but they have the inward testimony of conscience, both of which, instead of welcoming, they wanted to rid themselves of, to break the bonds to get rid of these cores that restrained them. They didn't want to be restrained. They wanted to worship gods which did what they wanted, gods that they were in control of rather than worship a god who was in control of them. They wanted uh, to have philosophies that... Took away their consciousness of sin. They they saw these things. They saw these constraints imposed by God on every human being ever born into this world as like shackles, handcuffs, stopping them doing what they wanted to do. And that is why they raged against the Creator God, the God of Israel, God of Abraham, Isaac. of Jacob, that is why they raged against the constraints that he imposes upon people wherever they are whatever they have heard whatever else they know and don't know uh, who have been shown the existence and the reality of a creator God external testimony the internal testimony of conscience if you're constrained, if you're tied up They want to do their own thing. They want to worship gods that are under their control, rather than be under the control of the Creator God. I know I said that just now, I wanted deliberately to repeat it. Well then, that is an analysis, if you like, of the human condition. Now what is the response of God, we uh, move on to verse 4. The response of God is is threefold. First of all, we're told that he laughs and holds these people, these unbelieving people, in derision. Secondly, we're told that he speaks to them in his wrath and terrifies them in his great displeasure translated different ways in different versions, but I think the thing is clear. God speaks to them in his wrath and he punishes them for their sin. And thirdly, he sets his king on the holy head of Zion. The three responses of God to the fury and the anger and the rage of the unbelieving world. And uh, in case I forget to say it, that doesn't mean that he is just reacting to their rage. The fact that he has set his king upon his holy hill of Zion was part of his plan before, before time began. We're not saying that God is saying, oh dear, I'm in trouble, so i better do something in response. That's what I, not what I mean by response. This response is a response that was planned, understood, and known before the world began. But I still call it a response. It's an answer, if you like, to the range of man. But well, the first thing we're told is that he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Now, you might be a little bit uncomfortable with that language because it sounds a little bit like something that is below the dignity of God to laugh at the unbelievers and to deride them and, uh, and look upon them with uh, a der- derision. But uh, we, we have to understand that in many places in Scripture, God is deliberately described as acting like a human being. And this is quite often done in scripture. Anthropomorphisms are intentionally introduced to help us understand the nature of God. God's nature is really beyond our comprehension. And to help us understand God and his actions, uh, we Often find scripture resorts to this um, anthropomorphic approach. And that's what he's doing here. This is the way a human being would respond and react to those uh, to whom he attributes no strength, no power, no ability to do him any harm. He looks down upon them, he looks up down upon their their vain plotting, their, their schemes to get rid of his bondage, which is an impossibility because God is a sovereign God and man is made in the image of God. Because of those things, there is no way they're going to be able to break uh, the bonds apart and cast away the cords of God. They can't do that as long as they remain human beings. And, and God knows that. He understands that and he sees their feeble attempts to escape from constraints from which they cannot ever escape. And, and it, it's, it's amusing to him, doesn't trouble him one little bit, and he derides them. Well, that's the way a human being would react to an enmity that was particularly futile I don't know if you've ever seen a, a, a three-year-old uh, in, in a, a, a paddy, as we call it, having a, having a bad time. And he goes up to his father, his big strapping man, and he, he beats upon his father's legs uh, as if to, to do some damage to the father. The father just, just laughs. The father knows that the three-year-old cannot do him any harm. Uh, and, and that is the picture that we have here. But he doesn't, he doesn't stay in that mode. Uh, the Lord does take the rage of the peoples seriously. So the second thing he does after he holds them in derision, the second thing he does is to speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. God judges man for his sin. We live in a fallen world, and it is so familiar for us to live in a world which is under the judgment of God that we almost don't notice it. But God is continually judging the world. He judges the world through natural disasters. He judges uh, the individual through uh, many afflictions and problems. And we have uh, a genuine consciousness of the way life is hard and difficult. And that is because we live in a fallen world. And it has pleased God not to spare Christians, not to spare his children from these judgments. He could have taken us out of the world, but he doesn't want us out of the world. He wants us in the world so that we might show forth the praises of the God who has called us. Out of the darkness of sin and disobedience and rebellion against God into his marvelous light, we're here for a purpose. God leaves us here for a purpose, and as long as God leaves us here, we are going to suffer exactly the same judgments that come upon the world. It is a fallen world because the greatest of those judgments is, is death itself. We are subject to death, and yet. It is a death that for the believer leads to uh, eternal life. So uh, death is no problem for the believer or should not be a problem for the believer. But this is a world under continuous judgment. Now, sometimes some special problems occur. How about a pandemic uh, of the uh, coronavirus? We might say, well, this is terrible, affecting all the nations of the world, or most of them, and it's causing many people to die, causing economic collapse and, and, and problems in the advanced nations. Um, it's a terrible thing. Or, or the explosion in Beirut. We, we, we look at that and say, what a horrible thing to happen. Now, all of this is a demonstration, these are all examples (coughs) of the judgment of God upon a fallen world. And uh, it's not specific that one is a judgment and the other is a judgment, but other things are not judgments. The, The entire fabric of the world in which we live is the fabric of a world and human race under the judgment of God. So God's judgment is a further response and a more serious response to the rage of the nations against him. And then, of course, finally, there's this wonderful thing, the setting of his king on the throne. Verse 6. As for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. There is a contrast here, of course, isn't there, between God's king, my king, and the kings of the nations uh, mentioned in verse 2. And as God's ways are higher than our ways, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts, so God's king is higher than the kings of the earth. And the king that God has set upon the holy hill of Zion is a king of kings and a lord of lords. Well, now, what what's so different about this king? Well, he is God's king for a start. But the reference to the Holy Hill of Zion is is illuminating. Now, Zion is the highest hill, highest mountain in Jerusalem. Uh, Zion uh, was the final resting place of the of the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. David brought the tabernacle to Mount Zion, this particular uh, peak in the the city of Jerusalem, which he established, of course, as his his fortress and his headquarters, uh, he brought the tabernacle to this place. When the temple was built that replaced the tabernacle, it was built on a different hill, not on Mount Zion. So Mount Zion being the resting place of the tabernacle, Uh, Why is that important? Because the tabernacle contained the manifestation of the presence of God among his people. Uh, Most of you know this, that uh, in the tabernacle, which was first constructed in the wilderness under Moses' direction, or God's direction to Moses, um, that contained an area which was called the Holy of Holies. where where not even the priests were allowed to enter except the high priest went in once a year. And in that holy of holies there was the ark, box like object, uh, the ark of the covenant in which the law of Moses, the tablets of the law were kept, it was called the ark, the container of the law. And the lid of that ark was made out of one solid piece of gold and consisted of a, a slab which formed the lid of the ark, and two, uh, two cherubim with their wings arched over the mercy seat, meeting in the middle. And there between the cherubims and above the mercy seat there resided a manifestation of the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, something visible, something that man was not permitted to look upon. And uh, that was, it was not God, it was not God, it was just a manifestation of the glory of God being among his people. And that's what made Mount Zion, a holy mountain, a holy place, because it was uh, the place where God had his residence. That means that the kingdom of this king is a spiritual kingdom. Primarily a spiritual kingdom. And that King, of course, is Christ. And uh, the Lord said to me, you are my son. And I guess it's a little bit complicated at this point because uh, God is speaking up to verse five, it's, it's the commentator speaking, the psalmist. Verse six, it's God who speaks. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, and then in verse 7, uh, the narrator becomes the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. I will tell of the decree the Lord, Yahweh, said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, there is no disagreement among Bible-believing commentators, that the Lord Jesus Christ is co-eternal with the Father. God the Father and God the Son are co-eternal. We get that, of course, very clearly in the opening of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, reference to Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, all things were made by him, and without him was nothing made that was made, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Well, such passages as that it tell us quite clearly that, that the second person of the Trinity, of the train God, Christ is co-equal with the Father, co-existent with the Father, from uh, before time began. And there is no question about that, but I think some commentators are correct in saying that this statement, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The word begotten, of course, signifies um, uh, an offspring of the same nature as the parent, I just pause to underline that. Um, human beings make statues, but human beings beget human beings. To beget something, it has the nature of the one who begot it. So in that sense, the very use of the word beget signifies uh, normally a sharing of the nature of the one who begot. But but there are uh, persuasive reasons for believing that this reference, you are my son, today I have begotten you, is not in fact referring uh, to what we call the eternal generation of the son, eternal coexistence with the father. And the reason uh, we have that conviction is if you don't want to turn with it, I'll read it anyway. Um, but in Acts chapter 13, and the Apostle Paul is preaching, in verse is 32 and 33, um, <clears throat> He's talking about Christ, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee after his resurrection, who are our witnesses to the people, and we bring you the good news That what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption he has spoken in this way I will give to you the holy and sure blessing of David. And you see, the Apostle Paul there quite clearly applies this statement in Psalm 2, you are my son this day I have begotten you, to the resurrection of Christ. And so the picture is that God set his king upon the holy hill of Zion, when he raised Jesus from the dead. It was the resurrection of Christ that set him in this position of king that began, if you like, his reign over the kingdom of God. And and that makes a, a lot of sense because the psalm then goes on to describe this the reign, this kingship, this reign of Christ. Ask of me, the Father says to the Son, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, and so on. And this, of course, is our third point. This kingdom of Christ, this this reign of Christ, obviously has two aspects. The two aspects are these. First of all, what he will do, to those who are still his enemies, to those who are still his enemies, to the people in verse 1 and 2. He says, or at least the decree that God has issued, uh, says that the nations will be the heritage of Christ, And he will break them with a rod of iron, or rule them, perhaps, is another alternative translation. You shall rule them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Uh, Now that, of course, refers back to their desire, their ambition to, to burst their bonds apart. No, they're not going to burst the bonds of Almighty God. Of the sovereign God In whose image they are made They can't do that But Christ Will shatter them They want to shatter the bombs But he will shatter them As a potter's vessel Something very easily done As you all know If you've ever dropped something uh, China or pottery onto the floor And therefore we have here Christ ruling over his enemies and punishing them, crushing them, defeating them, but at the same time there is a happy aspect of his kingdom. Now therefore, O kings, the very people Oh uh, he will crush, if they remain in enmity against him, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. They have an option, you see. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. They have a choice, you see. Under the reign of Christ the enemies of Christ will be progressively defeated and crushed but at any time those very enemies those very kings and rulers have the option to turn from their wickedness and live to turn to Christ to trust in him uh, to serve Yahweh, with fear, with reverence and rejoice with trembling, to kiss the sun. Now, we're not talking about kissing on the lips, which is what we normally think of today. Uh, Kissing the sun would be uh, a reference to the way in times past uh, people who wanted to submit to the authority and rule of another king perhaps would kiss his feet or perhaps we haven't seen that sort of thing happening. It might happen in some dictatorships, I suspect, um, but, but you're familiar with the idea of kissing the hand. Uh, a monarch puts out his or her hand and the person wishing to demonstrate their submission to that monarch well, kiss the hand. So kissing the son would be an act of personal uh, surrender, if you like, to Christ, which is something that every believing Christian has done. So you see, we have um, this very interesting two sided coin. We've got Christ reigning since his resurrection, and in his rule, he both defeats his enemies and builds his church. And I think that is made very, very clear in in 1 Corinthians. I can find the reference, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, uh, we look at verse 24. Then he says comes the end, looking forward to uh, the return of Christ, and to the end of human history as we know it and understand it. Then comes the end when he that is Christ delivers the kingdom, kingdom of which we've been speaking, to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So there we have a clear picture. Christ is reigning, reigning now. He is exercising his lordship. Now, And that involves a continual destruction of his enemies. He must reign until he has destroyed all his enemies. Last enemy to be destroyed will be death itself. And then he will render the kingdom back to the father, dedicated if you like, back to the father But Christ is going to be reigning for a period of time during which his enemies are still there and having to be dealt with, having to be crushed, having to be defeated. But at the same time, the gospel is being preached and the psalm, of course, concludes with blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Now we could have got into, this is just a postscript, we could have got into the whole issue of um, eschatology, the last things, and the different views of whether Christ will come before the millennium, after the millennium, or whether there's not going to be a millennium. But we didn't need to do that, because our present situation is clearly described in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ is on the throne. Christ is dealing with his enemies. Christ is calling his people out from their darkness, from their enmity, from their rage, to trust in him, to submit to him, to become his disciples. That is a picture of where we are at this present time.